12th chapter of the book of Acts is our text. The characteristics of a difference maker, a person who has a passion for people, who has a plan that has a focus, the focus of God, and has a preoccupation with service. I want to talk this morning about being a difference maker through prayer. The conditions of being a difference maker through prayer found in this little story, beginning verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him and put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. He he thought he was dreaming. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. The first record of an automatic door. Seen them in the supermarkets, and you walk up there, and the baby just swings open. First, first one, which opened for them by itself, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, "Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all the Jewish people, from all that the Jewish people were expecting." and When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed, surprised. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. And he departed, went to another place. What do you believe about prayer? What is your theology 
concerning prayer. Do you believe that prayer is aligning your oneself up to what God has already planned to do? Or do you believe that prayer is asking God to do something that He had not planned to do? Well, I believe that there is proof of both of these in the Scripture. I, I think that the Scripture holds both of these concepts in tension. For example, in the 38th chapter of the book of Exodus, God is so displeased with Israel that He tells Moses, Now leave me alone because I've made up my mind I'm going to destroy Israel. And Moses begs God not to destroy Israel. And verse 14 says that God changed His mind and didn't destroy Israel. That's one side prayer. The other side of prayer, an illustration of it, takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is at the point of death there, and this is His prayer, paraphrased. Father, I wish I'm asking you not to let this happen to me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he aligns himself up with what God had already planned to do. The scriptures seem to hold these two concepts in tension. Now the Bible is unequivocal in its declaration of the sovereignty of God. That God is in absolute control of the universe and that everything that happens is the result of His ordination and plan. But the Bible is also is as equal in its equivocation concerning its declaration that God moves within the circle of this sovereignty, and in the circle of this sovereignty He beseeches us to pray to Him, and that our prayer makes a difference, and He longs to hear us pray. John Piper has a marvelous book entitled Desiring God. And in this book, he he mentions two uh, passages of Scripture, two verses of Scripture that deal with both these concepts. The first has to do with the pursuit of um, aligning ourselves up with God, what God has already planned. And so in John 14, 13, he says, And whatever you ask in my name... That will I do in order to be glorified. But he also shows the other side of that of prayer in John 16, 24, when he says, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy might be full. So one is the pursuit of God's glory and the other is the pursuit of our joy. And John Piper shows the correlation between knowing just a little bit about Jesus and asking just a little bit from Him. In other words, his point is is that the more you know about Jesus, the more you're going to ask of Jesus. And he makes this graphic point that, that there are many of us who have received Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, but we don't know much about Him. We just... Know of Jesus is Lord and Savior, so we never really ask much of Him except maybe to get us out of trouble when we, when we get in trouble. You remember when Jesus in the fourth chapter of John was at the well in Sychar and this woman was there and He asked her for a drink of water and then Jesus said to the woman, speaking of Himself, 
If you had known who it was that asked of you for a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. And what Piper's uh, contending is, is that it does make a difference when you pray, and the more you know about Jesus, the more you know that you can ask of him. He said it was like a man who drives his bus in a ditch, and he gets out, and he's pushing that bus with all of his strength, trying to get it out of the ditch, when inside the bus is sitting Clark Kent. And he doesn't have the slightest idea who he is or what he's capable of doing. He said it's like the woman who papers her house with gift certificates from Saks Fifth Avenue, and she buys her uh, goods down at the sack and save because she's never learned how to read. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you really believe, I mean really believe, that prayer makes a difference? Now, most of you, I think, would, would agree to that. You'd say amen to that in your, you know, under your breath, I'm sure. That many of you said amen. But let me ask you this. Why do we do so little praying if we really believe that? When I was a kid growing up, I'd go over to see my grandmother. She lived about two miles from our house and Everything be going just fine. Kids be doing just like kids do, except at a certain time during the day, everybody had to get quiet because she listened to this radio preacher. You probably know the name, E.F. Weber. He, he broadcast out of Oklahoma City. I mean, we, we all got quiet, and Grandmother turned on the radio to listen to this preacher, radio preacher. This is how he started his, his sermon. He'd say, God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Now that's a wonderful little cliche to say. I believe that prayer changes things. But do you really believe that? If you do, why do you not pray? I live with a growing conviction, my friend, that if there has been any success in my life, it has been because somebody, as this choir has just sung, has been on his knees for, for me. First it was my mother, and then it was some people that I've known across the years. Prayer does make a difference. Now Jesus had a lot to say about prayer. Most of what He had to say about prayer had to do with attitudes concerning it with regard to purpose and preparation. With regard to purpose, He said, don't be like the hypocrites who pray for, so that you can, you can be impressed with their much speaking. They get on the street corner and, and pray, and you come by and say, man, what a prayer. You come back 30 minutes later, and he's still praying. You say, man, what a long prayer. But I wonder if there's anybody here this who can pray publicly and not worry about how you sound to the people who are around you. I dare any of you to say you can do that. First pastor I had right out of college, I, I got into a prayer meeting with some guys who from Rotan, Texas. They were Pentecostals and Assembly of God and... Nazarenes and a couple of Baptists. We'd get together on Saturday night to pray. And we'd kneel around, you know, we'd be in one church one week, the next church the next, and we'd kneel and pray. And those Pentecostals would get with it. Man, they were shouting amen, hallelujah, and the Nazarenes were getting in there. And, and, and we'd be praying around the circle, and it's getting close to me. You know what I'm thinking? I wonder if I can say something. It'll cause some amenings and hallelujahs, you know. And I, I'm working on my, on my prayer while it's coming toward me. You know, I'm thinking, man, if I say this, I'm going to get a rise out of those guys. 
And Jesus said, when you pray, you're, you're, you're talking, to, you're, you're expressing to God. It's like the father said to the little boy one day at mealtime, he's, he's, he's muddling and mumbling his prayer for meal, and the father said, I can't hear you. He said, I'm not talking to you. Right. <laughs> now, now, Jesus is not condemning public prayer. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He's, ta- he's condemning the desire for public accolade in prayer. He said, you're talking to God. And then he, has, he talks about the preparation of prayer. Now watch this. He said, when you come to pray, you need to understand that you come seriously and consciously and deliberately and devotionally with a deep conviction that you're coming in to the presence of Almighty God Himself. Think of that. We have access to the throne of the universe We have access to the God who created us and everything around us. We have access to the one who controls everything. Now no condemnation I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We are in God's presence in prayer. It's like the emperor who would go out in battle and come back and he'd like to have parades. and He'd be riding in his chariot down the street in this parade. One day while he was riding down the street in the chariot in the great parade, a little boy broke through the crowd and went running out in the street. One of his guards stopped him and said, Man, you can't go out there. Don't you know who that is? That's the emperor. Little boy said he's the emperor, but he's my daddy. And the emperor in the chariot reached down and took a little boy in his arms, and a little boy in his arms, in the arms of his father, said, "He's the emperor, but he's my daddy." You're in the presence of the father, who is the emperor of the universe. You think that doesn't make any difference? Sure, it does. Now, that's the that's the introduction. Okay. Now, the introduction, however, is as long as a sermon, so take heart. Okay, here we go. I, I'm, I've, I've come to believe that there, I've come to, to some conviction about prayer over, the, over this long pilgrimage that I've been on. And I believe that this text suggests four conditions of difference-making prayer. I want you to get these. You might want to make a little note here. Four conditions of difference-making prayer. Number one has to do with the setting the setting. The setting is this. The church is growing. It's exploding. Thousands are being saved, Jews and Gentiles alike. And persecution begins, and the church is bathed in blood. James, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, is put to death, and Peter is put in prison. And the implication here is because Caesar, the emperor, saw that it pleased the people when James was put to death, that he'd put Peter to death. And he's getting ready to kill him also. But, the scripture said, the church is in prayer. Now what is, is that, the, that prayer is the first order of business for the difference-making church?
with prayer. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is this. He's talking about, he's talking about prominence and priority. He's saying that the church has no business doing anything until the church is in prayer. It's the first order of business. He's talking about the status and the priority of prayer. Now, what status does prayer have in your life? Man, what a, what a question. Does it have priority in your life? Does prayer have priority? What status does prayer have in this church? Come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night and find out. Look in the prayer room during the week and find out. Tell you, that'll tell you what prominence prayer has in this church. Let's suppose that someone of our fellowship got into Peter's problem here. I mean, he got thrown in prison. Got, well, let's just take Andy. Not an unlikely situation. I mean, so P- Peter, uh, Andy gets thrown in jail like Simon Peter. What's the first thing we do? Well, the first thing we do is we get him a lawyer. That's what the first, the best we can get. And we, gather to, we get together and we know, we know he don't have any money. So we get together and we get him some bail money. And somebody starts a petition to, you know, to defend him, saying that this guy cannot be guilty. We all believe in him because we're people of action. And about the last thing we do is pray. I've had people tell me this more times than I can count. You know, we've done everything we can. I guess now the only thing left we can do is pray. And I have left public meetings of where church, where the church has been together to decide matters. And I've had people say this. Well, this sounds like a great idea. Before we leave, let's ask God to bless it. S.D. Garden was right when he said, There are some things you can do after you've prayed, but there is nothing that you should do until you've prayed. You have a trial in your life. What is that trial? Some addiction, a rebellious teenager, some problem, money problem. What's the first business that you do? You take it to God. That's the setting. Second, has to do with the supernatural. Now, it's obvious from the reading of this text that a miracle occurred. I mean, this doesn't just happen. He's been put under the watch of four guards. That means every six hours they changed guards. It's called, they're called the Praetorium. They're the best, they're the, they're the best soldiers that, that Caesar could find. They put him in the inner part of the, of the jail and they had all these guys guarding him with this big gate that uh, you know, he had to get through. And one night, chains fell off and angels talked and and gates opened, and Peter's saying to himself, Man, what a dream. This is great. About four o'clock this morning, my, I kind of woke up from a nightmare. My wife said, You have another nightmare? You bet. I, I won't share the gory details with you, but Peter woke up in the middle of the night and he looked around and he thought, Man, this is, a, this is a dream. When he got out in the street, he realized that something supernatural had occurred in his life. Now watch this carefully. Prayer has, has all the credentials of a miracle. Call it whatever you will. An earthly happening with a heavenly explanation, an earthly event that is not limited by time or space, whatever you want to call it, let me tell you something. Prayer 
lays hold upon supernatural events. Are you listening? It is not your, your let, me, let me say it this way. Your difference making in this world is severely limited if you don't know anything about prayer. Now there are di- there's a difference that you can make in people's lives. Any human being can make a difference in another human being's life. But it is severely limited apart from prayer because prayer lays hold upon the supernatural. I suppose that everybody here this morning could give testimony of some supernatural event, experience in prayer. The first encounter I ever had with a supernatural prayer happened when I was a student at Southwestern Seminary. Now, I pastor this little church, and I'd had some surgery. Now, I'd like to tell you about my surgery. Who wouldn't like, who doesn't like that? But I, that's for another time, but I, I had some surgery, and I was having a violent reaction to the, the, uh, the anesthesia that I received in that surgery. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't raise my head. I mean, I'd raise up, and my head just, it just, it was a violent headache, and I would become nauseous, so I, I couldn't even get up. I couldn't sit up. couldn't stand up. Right in the middle of that, I got a phone call from a lady out in West Texas, her husband. I had led to the Lord while I was a student in college and pastor a little country church. And he had died unexpectedly, left a wife and two small children. And she said, Gerald, I wish you'd come and preach his funeral. I'm thinking, how can I do that? I mean, I can't even sit up. But I, we felt obligated, Margaret and I, to go out to Anson, Texas. That's way out in West Texas, do this funeral. And so we, you know, Margaret was going to drive, and I was going to just lie down in the back seat. And just, we were going to make it just in time for the funeral. And we were going to just gut it out. Good old Knox County term. So we were headed out to West Texas, and we got between Albany and Anson. Now, there are not many woodpeckers out there because there are no trees. I mean, it's like ranch country, and you couldn't see you, maybe a ranch house way off in the distance, no traffic on the road or anything. And I'm lying in the back seat suffering death, and Margaret's driving and ran out of gas. Now, you, you'd think that my wife would fill up with... <laughs> and ran out of gas... And she said, Gerald, something wrong with the car. And I raised up and I looked and that baby was on empty and I just kind of fell back in the seat. True, true story. God is my witness. And I'm thinking, oh me. And I, so I can remember saying, oh God, help us. We're in trouble. Send somebody to help us. And we had just gotten, I mean, the car was kind of still rolling, you know, over to the side. And she said, I believe there's somebody coming. We'll, we'll flag them down and get some help. And, and there was this vehicle coming over the top of this hill there. Just, we, we'd just gotten stopped. And this vehicle came up over the top of the hill, started pulling over to help us. It was a gasoline truck. True story. <laughs> God is my witness. And this guy with a load of gasoline pulls over to the side. He said, having some problems? I said, we're out of gas. He said, well, I happen to have a little here. So he... <laughs> He, he just kind of backed his truck up a little bit, got this hose off his truck, filled it up. I mean, it hadn't been two minutes. We, he got back, started to get back in his truck. This is what he said. I, I told him the, 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 the sob story. This is what he said. He said, you're a lucky man. 
He said, I don't usually make this route on this day. And he told me about something that had happened the day before and made him one day late in the nick of time. Now, you, you ask me, you say, well, you got lucky. Well, I don't think so. I don't think I got lucky. I, I feel somewhat like the man was asked, his son was blind and he received his sight and he was asked, uh, you know, who did this? What happened here? He said, I don't know what happened. All I know is my son was blind and now he sees. I can't explain it. I just know that it was something supernatural. Now, I believe this. I, I'm, I don't believe it enough, but I believe this, that there is a supernatural tendency to prayer. That's the, that's the supernatural. I, I make it. Second, third, has to do with the support. Now, I, I, it's, it's obvious that what is happening here is that the church is praying. And there is, it is true that, that, per, that, a, that an individual goes before God and has access to God Himself. But what is happening here in Peter's life is happening as a result of the corporate prayer of the church. The church is in prayer. Now I want you to take your New Testament. I want you to turn to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. I want to show you a couple of things. Watchman Nee has a great book entitled The Ministry of the Church. And he talks about the ministry of prayer within the church. And he, and he, he comes to this passage in the 18th chapter of Matthew, beginning verse 18. And he talks about three imposing principles. Three imposing principles. Now you've got to look at this with me. Watch. Principle number one, there is power revealed through the church. Look at this. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now what Jesus is saying to His disciples is this, that, there, that the action on earth precedes the action of heaven. That's what John Wesley was talking about when he said, God does nothing but in answer to prayer. And, and I don't understand all that's involved here, but what Jesus is saying, church, is this, is that the church has the, controls the release of the power of God so that when the church acts in prayer, God acts in heaven. And that action of the church precedes the action of God. Now I want to read this to you. The church used, the church holds the key. This is Bill Hammer's statement. Watch this. Checks used by some business firms require the signature of two individuals to make them valid. One signature is not enough. Both parties must sign. This illustrates God's method of operating through the prayers and faith of the church. His promises are checks signed by His own blood. His part was completed at Calvary. But no promise is made good until the church enters the throne room of the universe and by prayer and faith writes its name besides God's. Then, and not until then, are the check's resources released. It's like a safety deposit box at the bank vault. The keeper has a key, you have a key. Neither key alone will open the box. But when you give the keeper your key, 
She inserts both keys and the door flies open, making available all the treasure stored in the box. Heaven holds the key by which decisions governing earthly affairs are made, but the church holds the key by which these decisions are implemented. What a statement. Do you hear that? There's a second principle, verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. He's talking about harmony. He's saying that when the church is in harmony and they agree on everything or anything, together they agree and it's done. The third imposing principle, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. What he's saying is this, that the reason why we unleash as the church the power of God is because God is where the people of God. God is present where the people of God are. That's the support. Got to hurry to the last. There are the surprises. Now I'm captivated by this, the fact that when Peter was released, they they were surprised. They were, they were amazed, amazed. In fact, they wouldn't even let him in the house. Thought he was a ghost. I mean, and he's out there saying, "You know, here I am. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a living answer to your prayer." And they said, "No, it can't be." And you say, "Well, that may, how could it be that a person could have a, the church could get answers to prayer when they didn't believe it would happen?" Well, they believed it would happen. They just didn't believe it would happen like this or at this time. They were surprised. I'm telling you. Listen to me. You're going to be surprised how God answers prayer. Does God always answer in the, in the affirmative? No. What about James? He's the pastor of the church. You don't think they prayed for him? Of course they did. You know what happened to him? Got his head cut off. I'm sure they didn't pray. Lord cut his head off. They, they prayed for him to be released. Did that discourage them from praying? No, not a bit. Because God does not always answer in the affirmative. Now watch this. Sometimes He answers go. Sometimes He answers no. Sometimes He answers slow. Sometimes He answers grow. When He answers go, He's saying, request is great. Request is granted. Let's go for it. It's going to be just like you prayed. When He answers go, He says no. That request is denied. Might as well get on with the business of life. The answer is no. When He answers grow, when He answers slow, He's saying, now that's a great request, but the timing is not right. Not yet. Don't get discouraged when you pray, when the timing's not right for the answer. When He answers grow, He's saying, that request is great, perfect, but you're not ready for it yet. I've got to do some things in your life first. You've got to grow first before I can answer it. But He always answers one or the other. And those who make a difference in prayer are to leave the answer with God. Now I want you to look at your art of service. I think I left mine over here on the... I want you to look at this art of service. See this thing down at the bottom? Everybody got one? How did you, how did you get in here without one of these? On the bottom of this, there's a little place for you to check. Believing that prayer does make a difference, my commitment is to pray faithfully blank minutes every day. Or to make prayer a vital part of our family. Or to teach my children, our children how to pray. Or to select a prayer partner with whom I pray. Or to pray daily for blank, somebody who is lost, that they may know God. I'd like for you to add one more. I will take an hour in the intercessory prayer room. I'm going to help you with the invitation. I want you to check one or more of these if you really believe prayer makes a difference.
I'll give you time to do it. With heads bowed, your eyes are not closed because you need to see what you're doing. I want you to check one or two of these. I will do it. I'll pray, I'll pray faithfully blank minutes every day. I'll make prayer a vital part of our family. Teach my children to pray. Select a prayer partner with whom I pray. Or to pray daily that somebody will know the Lord or I'll take an hour in the prayer room. Heads are bowed. Boxes are being checked. Our Father, grant to us today the deep conviction. The prayer is not only that we might align ourselves up with what you've already planned to do, but prayer is that which lays hold upon the throne of God, the universe, that makes a difference in the world. I pray, God, for praying people, for a praying heart, for the first priority of this church to become a place of prayer, a house of prayer. People calling on God for the supernatural event. I pray for this for myself, for my family, for my church. My prayer in Jesus' name. Now, there may be some of you who need to come this morning. I've talked several this week who've given their heart to Jesus and they're just, they can't wait like get through so they can come make public their profession of faith. Or maybe you need to come like the young man this morning to place your life in the fellowship of this church or to recommit yourself or just to say, I want to be a person of prayer. I commit my life to put prayer in the place of priority and prominence. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.